If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Happy New Year! Woo! Uh, that sounded like things were going bad. I don't. I don't know what that was. That was a celebration. Happy New Year! Welcome to to 2024. And what better way to ring in this new year than with a contemplation of time? And I mean deep geological time, because in geological time why this year might as well be the same as every single year since humans have existed. Because our lives, and in fact all of humanity, is a microsecond on the scale of the Earth's four and a half billion years. Welcome to week two of our Atlas Obscura advent calendar. We have arrived on Earth. If last week was all about space, this week is all about here. Earth's extremes, and how life formed on this often kind of terrifying planet. In today's episode, I'm speaking with author Peter Brannon about his book, The Ends of the World, which catalogs the five, maybe more, great extinction events that radically changed life and nearly ended it altogether. Nothing puts your various problems and New Year's resolutions into perspective like two million years of lava. I hope you enjoy the conversation. The world has already ended. Five times. Maybe more. Can we uh, talk about just a few of Earth's worst moments? Like, let's just talk about a couple of times when, like, it was pretty, pretty bad. Uh, yeah, so... Rotting oceans filled with poison gas, hypercanes, hurricanes with 500 mile an hour winds, enough lava that it could cover the lower 48 United States a kilometer deep. Jesus. Enough to cause a mass extinction. Enough to wipe out 90% of the world's species. The end of the world for nearly all life on Earth. So maybe not the end end, but a pretty close shave. There's a thing called a fungal spike at the mass extinction, where the, it looks like there's these little spores of fungus everywhere all over the planet. Literally, things just rotting everywhere. Someone has written that you could walk around the entire world without seeing a tree in the early Triassic. Um, I mean, it's really, it's really Lord, fake. that's yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah. And that is only the beginning. 
I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, science writer Peter Brannon will take us on a tour of the world's five major mass extinctions. Our stops include a Walmart parking lot, the side of a highway, under a pier in Boston, and a hike in Colorado. At every one of those places, we will find evidence of when the world nearly ended. And we'll peer into our own future to try and see what's coming. That is after this. I would had always had this picture in my mind of paleontology as being this romantic thing that happens way out in the middle of nowhere in the desert and stuff. But um, I mean, if you look under your feet, no matter where you are, there's a, like an amazing story about Earth history. Peter Brannon was the kind of kid who was obsessed with dinosaurs. And to be fair, so, so was I. Who I mean, who wasn't? Who isn't? But for Peter, it wasn't just about the dinosaurs themselves. He was obsessed with what happened to them. And turns out this wasn't just a phase. Over the years, he kept reading more and more books with titles like Under a Green Sky and T-Rex and the Creator of Doom. I'm both fascinated in sort of the science fiction aspect of paleontology and just that there are these lost worlds all around us. But I also thought there's, you know, there's also this huge news hook to it where it's like actually by studying these worlds, we can learn a lot about our own. Peter grew up to become a science writer himself for places like The Atlantic. And he's written his own geologically apocalyptic book, one that I really, really loved with the title The Ends of the World. Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions. Yowza. So I want to talk about, you mentioned something, you know, the the show focuses on place. I'd love to talk about the one that you recommended, which is sort of stumbling across a place on a hike in, in Colorado. Yeah, so I lived in Boulder for a few years. So I knew the general geology of, uh, the front range. And I was on a hike and I knew, okay, this ridge over here is the uh, Pennsylvanian 300 million years ago. And that sandstone over there is uh, a beach from the age of dinosaurs. So somewhere in the middle here, there's one of the biggest mass extinctions ever. It was an extinction event much bigger than the one that killed the dinosaurs. The volcanic lava flows, the hot oceans, the hypercanes, the fungal spike... It killed off 96% of species living in the ocean, which 252 million years ago was a lot of them. They call it the Great Dying. I I knew it was there, but it's mostly covered in grass and stuff, so you can't see it. But there's a layer called the Lichens Formation, which is all these stromatolites. So a stromatolite is sort of this mound of bacteria that calcified and they're very rare on earth today but they basically dominated the fossil record for four billion years before earth history and they almost disappear entirely when animals show up um, because animals churn up the seafloor and stuff and then very eerily they show up after the biggest mass extinction the permian so i knew it was somewhere on this hike i was going to go on and i like tripped over this rock and i was like oh my god that's a stromatolite so i knew i was sort of right at the the end permian mass extinction it turns out evidence for the end of the world is everywhere. You don't need to travel to some remote spot to find the apocalypse. Now <laughs> my my head's just on a swivel. Uh, it's made driving very dangerous being into geology because every sort of outcrop you go by, you're 
kind of like, what was that? Yeah, your book clued me into the fact that like road cuts are this like incredibly, like weirdly valuable ge- geological like viewing window. I hadn't really thought about them that way, but. but Yeah, it's amazing. You go to geology conferences and people will give these very high-minded talks and then they'll be like, here's our field work. And it'll be like I-35 uh, near the near the McDonald's or whatever. There's this like <laughs> incredibly important uh, piece of earth history. Road cuts are the places where highways go through big rocks or mountains, exposing layers and layers of geological history. And they're one of the many places that Peter has spotted evidence of a major extinction event, including on the side of a highway in Cincinnati. You uh, sort of rifle through the scrap heap at the bottom of the, these rock outcrops. It's like, it's impossible not to, I mean, you're just picking up handfuls of fossils. It's incredible. He's found fossils from the second mass extinction in the riverbanks of Cleveland. Everywhere he goes, he is drawn to and haunted by these geological ghosts of catastrophe and chaos. The most mundane places revealing stories of the most extreme events in Earth's history. You went to the, so there's something in the Palisades. Uh, well, that's the next, that's the fourth mass extinction. There's something in a Walmart parking lot. I don't remember what that was. Oh, is. yeah. I mean, that's that could be any of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's that's, something. I think. Under I a think wharf that's behind in a... Boston? I don't, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in Boston, it's literally the first large complex, the first fossils of large complex life on Earth. I really I, I really enjoy that because it's the sort of, it, it, it really gets to this sense of, of living completely immersed in and surrounded by deep time and these many deeply different versions of this planet. And they're just sort of like, baked into the back the most mundane backgrounds you can possibly imagine Um, yeah yeah. so step two you found a fossil from a couple million years ago right next to the Wahlburgers. that is a real example what's next well by looking at that fossil and geological record you see a disturbing picture of history start to emerge and this is where the end of the world comes in what really is a mass extinction event? How do you kind of define that? Yeah, so there's what's called the big five mass extinctions, which really are the product of people combing through databases of all the species that have ever existed and noticing times where the extinction rate is way higher than the background rate. And for the big five mass extinctions, it's over 75% of species on Earth go extinct. If you set the bar lower, say... Only 50% of all species have to go extinct for it to qualify as a mass extinction. Well, then you'll find even more of them. You can read papers where it'll have 20 plus mass extinctions. Earth history is sort of threaded with disaster and bad things happening. (laughs) Yeah. Um, You know, life and the biosphere is a miracle, but man, it's, it's been a rough go. Let's hit the billboard charts real quick. The all time greats, the big five. Mass extinction event number one. It happened around 440 million years ago, and it took out all the small marine organisms. Afterwards, the fish bounced back in a huge way. These super weird-looking, truck-sized, bone-armored monster fish take over. It's known as the age of the fish. Until mass extinction number two. Goodbye, fish. And 99.9% of all the coral reefs. And then... The next extinction, by the Permian, you really do have an established ecosystem on land. 
There were these not-quite-mammal, not-quite-dinosaur things running around. They looked a little bit like if you crossed a Labrador with a Triceratops. And they're just sort of ugly and, and weird. <laughs> anyway, those weirdos were wiped out in the third mass extinction. And so was 96% of life in the ocean. This extinction was the biggest one, the one with the Siberian traps, those gigantic volcanic lava flows. That's game over for the trilobites after, you know, I don't know, 300 million years on the planet. So good they, had a, they had a good run. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mass extinction number four was more of the same. Another big volcanic event, lots of CO2 going into the atmosphere, chaos ensues. And number five, well, that's the one you've heard of. That's the one with the big old asteroid hitting the Earth, the one that ended with the extinction of the dinosaurs. It probably didn't help that there was a huge volcanic event happening in the same period. Pour one out for the dinosaurs, right? Like yeah. one of the worst volcanic uh, events combined with one of the worst asteroid event or the worst asteroid the event, wor- maybe. The, as far as we know, the biggest asteroid in the last billion years. Yeah, so, um, yeah. happening Happening at the same time that Enough lava was erupting out of India that it could cover the lower 48 United States uh, 600 feet deep. Yeah, Uh, that's a bad beat, you know what I mean? As far as mass extinctions go, death by asteroid impact is actually a pretty extravagant way to go out. In fact, when scientists first discovered evidence of the asteroid event, they were super excited and fanned out all over the world looking for asteroids connected to all the other mass extinction events. And the surprise of kind of the last 30 years or so has been that there, there isn't any evidence for asteroids at the other yeah. extinctions. Instead, what they found is that the asteroid impact is kind of a pretty glaring anomaly. It seems that all the other mass extinctions were caused by essentially the same thing. Huge, enormous releases of CO2, carbon dioxide, into the atmosphere. Not super great. Of course, the bonefish and the therapsids, those weird proto-dinosaurs, they weren't driving around in Hummers or running coal power plants. Their CO2 emissions came from what are called large igneous provinces. Basically, just absolutely enormous amounts of lava. These huge outpourings of uh, basalt lava that inject tons of CO2 into the oceans and atmosphere and drive global warming and acidification and ocean anoxia and all these things that we're kind of worried about for our own future are 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 driving a lot of the old mass extinctions. I got to be honest, your book, like, you know, asteroids are like scary. They're like this existential threat. But I feel like, oh, we like might be able to do something about that. And it made me like your book made me way more scared of like giant volcanic events that I'm like, I don't, what's our move? Like, what do we do if there's like a, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I, just I don't feel think like you can, I, I don't think you can do anything. Yeah. I have like an existential fear of large volcanic uh, events now. So thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, so as, as far as I know, there's not one, one's not on the horizon for at least the next few tens of millions of years. I did see a paper recently saying that if it does happen, it might happen in Kenya. There's like the, the mm. makings of like a, a large igneous province, but in like 20 or 30 million years from now. The thing that drives extinction events seems to be the thing we are doing right now, putting a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere. And whether we're currently in a sixth mass extinction event is debatable, but really that shouldn't provide much comfort. You know, it's not the sixth extinction yet. 
that seems to get us off the hook. It's actually an incredibly scary argument because these mm-hmm. things are really pretty bad. And we <laughs> there and there might be dynamics in them like network collapses, yeah. like a like a power grid failure where you don't know really where the the edge is. I mean, you have a great metaphor in the book where you talk about the earth as a patient presenting to a doctor with chest pains after a history of heart attacks so that these sort of mass extinctions are, we have, we know that this can happen. And we're sort of looking and saying, huh, this has kind of the the hallmarks of one of these like really bad episodes. I mean, that scared me. The network collapse stuff scares me. I mean, in a kind of really like acute way. Uh, how should we be thinking about that? So the reason why some paleontologists have started to think like that is because for some of the mass extinctions, you have incredible stressors going on for a very long, for like on the order of hundreds of thousands of years. And then the mass extinction unfolds unfolds very fast. Yeah. So when we look around, we see a world that is really taking a beating from everything we're doing. And we can comfort ourselves by saying, oh, it's not technically a mass extinction yet, but it's like, we don't know where the, we don't know when, you know, you pull out the one, the, that one card in the, in the, whatever you call it, the house of cards that makes the whole thing fall down. In some ways, there is a kind of existential silver lining. Following each of the five major mass extinctions, new life took root. Life will recover, even if there is a sixth mass extinction. We just won't be around to see it. Which, if I'm honest, that's still a problem for me. Final, final, final question. You know, working on this book, looking at all these periods, looking at when things were truly bad... Does, did, did you end up more or less terrified or the same terrified? Um, I don't know. It kind of changes from day to day. I think in general, it made me more hopeful. Hmm. Um, I think I kind of went into the book project with this, you know, very ecological gloom and doom perspective where it's like, oh, we're the worst thing ever. And, you know, we're not the worst thing ever. Um, the Siberian so, traps are the worst thing ever. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. So when I need sort of my moment of Zen, I will, you know, kind of revel in the geologic, the long geological, you know, tapestry that we're part of, and that will continue going on long after us. And there is something consoling about that. Um, But then when you actually dig into these things and you compare them to what we're doing today, you know, I think the next few centuries really are going to be pretty, they could be pretty unpleasant. Um, We're not, again, we're not there yet. I mean, it's so up in the air. This is why I vacillate on this, this question, because it's like, yeah. If we really, if we really screw up, it could be really, really bad. But I think that's why right now is the maybe the most interesting time to be alive, maybe ever, because we are at this, you know, pivot point where either we're going to go down these the road of these incredibly dark chapters of Earth history, or yeah, we could just, you know go on to have a wonderful, flourishing, you know, creative life on this planet. And it all comes down to how stupid we are in the next few decades. So this is this is a Yeah, this is it right here. Thanks to Peter Brannon. His book is called The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions. It's it's really, really good. And it it both terrifies you. It galvanizes you to feel like we must do something and It puts everything into the context of geological history, which is a really interesting place to view the world from.
Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was produced by Sarah Wyman. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Willis Ryder Arnold, Baudelaire Seuss, Manolo Morales, Sarah Kaplan, Gianna Palmer, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Casey Holford, Peter Clowney. This episode was sound designed and mixed by Luce Fleming. And our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will see you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.